Did Jesus have to die? Here we are. We've been talking for six weeks now about the history and meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. And how is it that we haven't asked a fairly basic question like, did he have to die? But I think it's an important question because it touches on a lot of different and important ideas. The last couple weeks, we've been looking at different atonement motifs, different ways of understanding the meaning of what happened on the cross. And this question, did Jesus have to die, is a way at looking at some of the distinct features of each way of understanding what Jesus did for us on the cross. Historically, this question gets to key questions about what level of choice and agency do we have on a macro and systems level. And theologically, it looks at deep questions about what God is doing in the world. Did Jesus have to die? The first two motifs we have looked at are Jesus as sacrifice and Jesus as victor over sin and death. In each of those, the answer is a pretty clear yes. Under the sacrifice motif, the premise is that we have sinned. Our relationship with God is out of whack. And as such, Jesus' death becomes our restitution. Jesus' death was necessary because our sin needed restitution. Under the victor motif, it's fairly obvious that in order for Jesus to conquer death, Jesus must first experience death. You can't can't defeat something that you don't meet head on. And if we look at the question historically, it's pretty clear that if you did the things Jesus did and said the things Jesus said, and if you'd done it a few times and found people wanted to kill you and were conspiring to kill you as the gospel said was happening, that you were going to wind up getting got. But that raises questions of human agency. Just because a thing is likely to happen, does it mean it must happen? Which gets us back to the first question. Did Jesus have to die? There are two main schools of Christian thought and they hinge on the question of human agency. One is Calvinism, which to be a lot reductionist says that everything that happens was meant to happen. It was predestined. You didn't decide to come to church today It was predestined that you would be here to be bored by Matt's musings on speculative questions. Everything that happens, happens because God decided that it would. The other school is called Arminianism, and it allows for the possibility of human free will, of human choice. You came here today. You could just as easily have gotten your weekly shopping done or watched the masters not on your phone discreetly, but on a big TV. And your choices have an impact on who you are. What does this mean for Jesus? Well, instead of looking at coming to worship on a random Sunday, how about we look at something like Adam and Eve eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Did God predestine them to eat the fruit? Or did they have a choice? Was it equally as likely that they wouldn't have eaten the fruit of that tree? And given their act of eating the fruit of that tree allows sin to enter into the world, how you answer that question is incredibly important. Which brings us back to Jesus. I am an Arminian. I believe for the most part that we have choice and agency in this world and our choices and what we do with our agency matter. And so when I approach the question, did Jesus have to die? I want to hold at least in theory, the briefest hope that we as humanity had some say in the matter which means there exists a possibility, however small, that Jesus didn't have to die. Bear with me for a second. 
But to allow for that, we need to look at another atonement motif. This motif begins with choice. In our life, in our morality, we have agency. We are formed by our communities, um, but given that we are formed by our communities, we are still relatively free moral actors. Given that, God comes into this world not so much to solve a problem, but primarily to be in relationship with us. God comes in Jesus Christ so that we can be more, uh, so that God can be with humanity more intimately. And God can help teach us how to live. God can guide us in following the law because we haven't been able to do it all that well on our own. But again, the key here is, is that Jesus came not so much to solve a cosmic problem, but Jesus coming because God has always desired a deepening relationship with humanity. So the motif goes. Another fundamental question tied up in this atonement motif beyond did Jesus have to die is this. If we had never sinned, would God still have come to be with us in Jesus Christ? If Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit, does God still become incarnate? And if you say no, what does that make of the Trinity? Is God, uh, is the being of God tied up into stuff humanity did? Why am I making your head spin? Because if you believe that regardless of what humanity did, God would still have come to be with us in Jesus Christ, then you could possibly imagine a world in which Jesus didn't have to die. And then the motivation for God coming to be with us in Jesus Christ isn't so much as being born to die as it is being born to live. So let's assume for the moment that God didn't come in Jesus only as a solution to a cosmic problem, that God didn't come in Jesus only to die, but that God came in Jesus to be with us. And his three years of public ministry, teaching and preaching served a key purpose for what God was doing in the world in Jesus Christ. And he grew and lived to be a man who could become a public teacher and preacher for a reason. Given all that, what happened when God came into the world? What did we do? How did we respond? We pushed him out. We violently expelled God from our world. We killed the God who came to be with us. But what was it all for? What did it accomplish? How does this read that ends with us killing the God who came to be with us function for our atonement? To move us forward, we turn to the words of Paul from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our own sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is a perfect distillation of the gospel right here. 
You, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we made a truly terrible choice, when we opted to kill God in Jesus Christ rather than listen to God in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died for us. This is how much our God loves us. This is how far our God will go to be with us. That even though when we made the choice to turn away from God, even though we made the choice to put our God on the cross, even though our love has failed time and time again, our God still came to be with us in Jesus Christ and comes to be with us again and anew. Our God never gives up. Our God never stops trying. So how is this atoning? How is this good news? Because given the possibility, let's be honest, given the high probability that in coming to be with us in Jesus Christ, it wasn't going to end well for Jesus, God still did it. Because that's how God loves. And even when we kill Jesus Christ, even when we kill God in Jesus Christ, God isn't going to stop loving us. God is never, ever, ever going to stop loving us, and God is never, ever, ever going to stop going to every length possible to save and redeem us. That kind of love has power. That kind of love is miraculous. Dare I say that kind of love is undeniable. And that's how in this motif, the cross functions for our atonement. We look to the cross and we see the limits God is willing to go to in order to be with us. God faces death, God faces derision, God faces abandonment, betrayal, torture. God faces the worst humanity can offer in Jesus Christ all in the name of love, in the name of the love God has for us in order to call us back to God. And when we see how much God loves us, when we see what God's love looks like in action, it does something in us. Well, I don't know about you, but it does something within me. I'm blown away. I'm taken aback. In some respects, I'm broken by this love. I'm broken about the decisions that I have made to put God out of my life. I'm broken about the fact that I might have been in the crowd the day Jesus was tried shouting crucify. Because I know that I've told God to get out. I know I've told God to go away. I see the ways in which the selfish choices I make, the sinful choices I make, wound God, literally. They pain God, literally. And God will never stop being wounded and hurt and punished by my sin. And that makes me want to be healed. It makes me want to be saved. It makes me want to be justified and sanctified. It makes me want to be the person that I was created to be, even as I know I'll never fully get there. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, as we ponder God's love for us revealed on the cross, our love for God grows. And we see that God's love for Jesus cannot be bounded or ended by death. As we see God's life raise Jesus from the dead, we see that God's love for us will not be bounded by death. And our love for God grows. As we see God's love play down in time, in history, in our world, through moments of celebration on Easter and moments of pain and dejection on Good Friday, when we see what God's love for us cost God, 
We are wooed and won, and our love for God grows. And as our love for God grows, we are saved. We are healed. God redeems us. God wins us back. We are drawn out of ourselves. We are less oriented towards self-interest and self-preservation. We are oriented towards God and what God desires for ourselves, for our lives, and for our world. We've looked at a number of different atonement motifs. And as we finish up with this one today, don't worry, there is a coda here. Um, I do want to stress that word motif again, although I know you're tired of me saying the word motif. Oftentimes they're called theories. And again, I'll say theories imply choosing one over another. Motifs say we can hold some of these in tension and see what they highlight and see what aspects of them speak to us, speak to our faith, speak to our experience of God. And what aspects maybe stretch us, maybe make us wonder, maybe make us push back. And that's okay. Because here's what we know about the cross. Something miraculous happened. It's something that we are still talking about 2,000 years later. And something that big, something that miraculous, something that wondrous, is multifaceted by its very nature, is deeper than we can comprehend. And so we have a lot of words, three Sundays worth of them, to talk about what that means. And even at the end, maybe say, we're still trying to understand. But next week is Easter Sunday. This week is Holy Week. And as you heard me announce, but I'll make another commercial for it, we have a number of programs and events and worship opportunities to help you walk through this crucial week. We have spent the last six weeks talking about what happened on this crucial week, how we got here and what it means. But as we conclude today's sermon, let me put a coda on this series so that we might be primed to encounter this story again and anew this week. We're sticking with Paul in Romans. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, thanks Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
we have spent the last three weeks talking about different atonement motifs. One thing all motifs agree on is that things are not as they ought to be. Adam sinned, and in Adam's sin, disobedience, death, and sin reigned supreme. We are born under the weight and under the rule of sin, but thanks be to God, the story's not over. I love the way, ta- I love the way Paul talks about atonement here. I love the way Paul talks about justification here. He calls it the gift. Over and over, he talks about the gift saving us from sin, the gift saving us from death, the gift overcoming the trespass. We can talk about what Jesus' death on the cross means, the different ways of looking at it, the different ways, different motifs emphasize different aspects. And we can ask speculative questions until our heads are hurting. But when we boil it all down, here's what the cross of Christ is to us. Here's what Golgotha is to us, the gift. The gift of God to overcome Adam's sin and our sin. We're going to be telling an important story this week, a big story. A story we believe is the hinge on which the entire history of the cosmos turns. As you approach this story, Paul gives us the best way to look at it. A gift. What we are about to tell, what we are about to experience, what we are about to reflect on, what we are about to remember is God's gift to us. Holy Week is God's gift to us. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's gift to us. And that gift can overcome anything and everything that is holding you back from fully embracing our loving God. As you experience this story this week, may you see and experience the gift and may you greet the risen Christ with arms wide open. Let us pray.